we need to be much more open to understanding the nuances of the roles that we're in and the companies that that we work in and especially where we're talking b2b versus b2c and again absolutely there's things that each can learn from the other but try to, to try to replicate what one does exactly in the other it's 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 a losing strategy that unfortunately we see a lot of people do whether it's just because they don't know any better or they're trying to be efficient i don't know what it is but it's a major challenge for sure Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. So what's going on? It's a hoodie day. Say again? It's a hoodie day. It is a hoodie day. It's it's cold. And total coincidence, we're both repping our ETSU hoodies from Steve. Yeah, that's right. It's a good good material. It feels comfy. It is. It's nice and comfy. It is. Super comfy. So that is what I go with on most cool days. It's a cool Mm -hmm. 44 degrees, blue skies. Colorful mm-hmm. trees. Yeah, it's 50 here, 50 and sunny here. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the cool weather has has arrived. I like this. I like this temperature. I Much colder in snow, I'm not a fan of, but this this fall temperature is, is nice. Yeah, I, I'm a spring and summer person. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, like the, the middle of August when it's super hot, maybe not so much. I mean, the fall... I hated the fall as a kid because it meant going back to school and I hated mm. school. Yeah. Uh, as an adult that believe it or not, that still kind of lingers, but yeah, you know, like, I mean, I don't mind this weather, but yeah, like the snow, I hate the snow. Yeah. It's not, it's not, unless you're like a hardcore skier, snowboarder, snowmobile, it's, it's just not enjoyable. It's nice to sit inside and look at it, but if you have to go outside, shovel that shit yeah it's just not enjoyable so yeah yeah and i made uh i made one of the most incredible sandwiches last night that i it may be my new thing that i'm addicted to for a while tell me more it's called the chopped cheese i had never heard of it so i've never heard of it okay so uh, that that makes me feel better. So apparently, it's a it's a East Harlem cult classic. That okay, is, is sold in like the bodegas in the neighborhoods, and um, I learned about it from the chef Kenji, um, who I subscribe to on YouTube, and I've seen him do some cool videos with Adam Savage from MythBusters. I saw him making it. I'm like, this looks incredible. And I guess for him, it was like a late night coming home from a bar 2 a.m stop at the bodega and get a chopped cheese okay so what it is at least the way he prepared it and it's just the way that i made it last night is you you take a hoagie roll and you kind of warm it up how you know whatever your method get it nice and warm you um saute some onions not necessarily get them all browned and whatnot just kind of get them a little soft 
And then you make a large burger patty. You throw it on your griddle. You let it cook a little bit. You season it with salt and pepper and chicken bouillon. And you kind of let it fry up a bit. And then you start chopping that thing up into pieces. You mix the onions in and he threw some peppers in uh, as well. So I did some like pepperoncini in it. And you let that kind of all mix together as kind of this chopped up hamburger with the onions and peppers. And then at the very end, you put a couple slices of American cheese on it. You take your hoagie roll, put some mayo on it, put your toppings on it, wrap it up. I'm good to go. It is incredible. That sounds phenomenal. Yes. So I have, I have more stuff. So I'm thinking about making it again for lunch today. It was so good. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just now finding out this chopped cheese is a thing. So yeah, no, that, that sounds phenomenal. Yeah. Quite delicious. And, and I will say since I've had to cut out grains, yeah. I do miss a good sandwich, like a good the bread, man. The whole roll really makes it, you know, it is like, I mean, like, you know, I've, you know, tried to use like gluten-free rolls, but they just, they just fall apart. It's so you can't same. really stuff yeah. it. Yeah. And this is coming from a guy who worked two years at a deli. Uh, oh, did you? College. Oh, yeah. My uncle that. owned like this little neighborhood deli for a few years. Oh, and awesome. so I worked, I worked there when I was in college and like, it's like, you know, we talk a lot about like the craft and yeah. you can go anywhere and someone will make a sandwich, but like, you know, kind of working in like the small little neighborhood place, the hole in the wall kind of place, you know, you, you kind of really learn how to put together something well. And like yeah. there, there is an art to making a sandwich. You just oh, want to slap stuff together. Forget about it. No, it is. And, and, and you can tell when you find one of those places, you just want to hang on to them because they're just few and far between places that yeah. really know how to make an amazing sandwich. Like so. the way you slice the meat, the way you cut the meat, the way you layer stuff. Yeah. It's, it, it, it makes or breaks it. And then, yeah, it comes down to the roll. It, it always comes down to the roll. So that's why I decided to start trying to make my own because I've had such a hard time finding a good hoagie roll in Utah. So I, I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm willing to put in the work until someone actually starts doing some good deli stuff here in Utah. It's, it's the one thing that I really love about the East coast. Like they, they do deli, right? Yes, I will agree. Yeah. So you are, you're spoiled in that aspect. <laughs> I, I, I know, I know, like, you know, you know, like you know, I see pictures of, of sandwiches from other places and I'm just like, no, that's not good. No, Come here and I'll show you, I'll show you something good. And that's the problem is that you, you kind of don't want to expose them to it because it's like, let them live in their ignorance that this is good. Because the minute you show them something else, it's like, well, I'm ruined. Mm -hmm. I can't do this anymore. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, it's good to, it's good to see the good stuff. And the East coast does deli's good. So yeah that's my update it's all the, it's all part of the nuances right it is you know, the, the, the the little things it's the little things that matter for sure and i need to come out to philly because we had talked about this uh sandwich with the was it the broccoli rob on it the yep pork what's it called the um I forget I the exact name of it. But you know what yeah. I'm talking about, right? I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. There's a few different places. I definitely and like at this point, like that. whenever anybody says that, so Adam from London, you mm -hmm. know, he and I have been chatting like next spring. Um, 
he and his girlfriend are supposed to be coming over. They are going oh, to visit yes. New York, and he's going to try to plan to swing by this area. Uh, you know, cool. And I said, yeah, I'll take you around places, and I won't take you to the tourist traps in Philadelphia. Yeah. You know, whenever, you know, I, I will fr- freely admit, Pats and Geno's in Philadelphia, like, yeah, if you want to go do the touristy thing. If you, you want know, the Instagram photo. Yeah. You know, if you want the real Geno's. sandwich, there's a few other places. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, we'll go to. Yeah. And I could take you to get the the really good stuff. That that to me is one of the most amazing things about traveling is knowing somewhere someone or trusting someone at your destination city to take you off the beaten track because all of that stuff, it's like I could just get this at home. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. this is this is pretty much just kind of sterilized and cleaned up for the mass consumer. I want I want the gritty hardcore. I like, you know, take me take me to the real places. That's where I want to go. Yeah. Yeah. There was several years ago, Brandy and I went to this Indian place that down in Delaware. I, and mm. I got to find like directions to it again. Cause it, uh, honestly, this is ages ago. He and I went to this hole in the wall, Indian place down in Delaware, I believe it was. And it was good. Yeah. It was phenomenal Indian food. Those are the places. Those are the places, man. And just thinking about it, I, I'm thinking about the last road trip my son and I took. We went to San Diego um, and I hit so many like local food joints. It was amazing. But on the way, I stopped in Riverside at UC Riverside. I went onto the campus and there is this hole in the wall deli inside one of the like dorm buildings on campus and i wandered into it and got a sandwich and it was so incredible so yeah that's the good stuff man all right how are we gonna and i haven't had lunch yet by the way so now i haven't I'm really yeah and you're and you're way past lunchtime yeah like for some reason my wednesdays have kind of morphed into this thing where like i'll take like a take eat lunch like 2 two thirty in the afternoon that's too I'd, so, I'd be freaking out yeah so yeah, let, 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 let's get into it and let, let's get into, I want to start a new, a new series today, a new series of episodes. And I want us to talk about B2B business to business versus B2C business to consumer businesses with the focus being around online. So whether that's e-commerce B2B versus B2C lead gen b2b versus b2c whatever it is like online yeah um and then also start to focus more on the digital analytics piece so for today what i'd like us to do is look at b2b versus b2c from the thirty thousand foot view and then the coming episodes we'll dive into some more of the specifics of it so you know like i'm going to throw out a rhetorical question to get us started but like online activity, online commerce is commerce, right? You know, regardless of who the customer is, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. Or, yeah. or you know, or are there? What are some of the nuances? Maybe maybe rephrase it this way: like, mm. if we look at B two B versus versus B two C, like all websites should function the same, right? Or you know, are there nuances? a business needs to take into account if they're you know looking to have maybe divisions or units that you know target one of those two 
For sure, right? And I, I think that the buyer profile is completely, completely different. Um, and I don't, you know, stop me if I get start getting too deep in the weeds for for topics that you have planned for future episodes that when we drill down into the details. But one one of the major challenges that B two B has specifically where you have companies that have both presence, both a B two C and a B two B component to their business. Um, the, the B2B often gets treated as the, uh, what's the, what's the term, the redheaded stepchild. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of ignored and, and kind of put in the corner and, and then they get this lens of, well, here's what your B2C friends did. So just do what they did. Um, but there's so much more nuance to, um, to how B and B2B operates that, those companies that try to overlay that kind of framework from the B2C side are putting themselves in an incredibly difficult spot because it is fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. What what are some of those things that make a B2B customer different from a B2C customer? What are some of the obvious things people realize, but then where I want to then take this is, is what are some of the smaller details, the finer details that people miss when it comes to trying to court and work with a B2B customer? I mean, just right on the surface, the buyer profile is completely different. Um, uh, you know, for as a B2C, I'm, I'm purchasing for me, you know, my, my specific needs. For B2B, I'm purchasing as a proxy agent for the business that I represent. And I may not even care about the stuff that I'm, I'm buying. So on B2C, where we're, we're driven a lot by emotion and by what our friends are saying. Um, B2B, uh, especially in a kind of a B2B retail setting, it's it's quite different from that, right? It's a very operational kind of tactical process that is uh, really a different feel from, from, from B2C. The, the biggest challenges, again, looking specifically at more B2B retail type of um, environments is your, your purchase process is often completely different, right? So I, I mean, I can go to the store, I can go to staples.com and slap down my credit card and buy, you know, whatever, some paper for my printer, uh, as a B2B buyer, it's usually not that, that easy. Um, you know, to oftentimes you're having to handle things like purchase orders and, and billing and on things that are just completely different that you would never have to think about, um, from a consumer purchase um, funnel perspective. And speaking of the conversion funnel, one of the things I think people often miss is the, the time, you know, yeah. the, the actual time to conversion that's, that's right. is often significantly different. Almost always like, longer, yeah. much, much, much longer. longer. Yeah. Like um, I, I worked for a company for about a year and a half early in my career as, as a small business rep working out of, out of a retail store, um, major technology manufacturer, um, because they wanted to try to build up like small business, um, you know, a a small business sales unit. Um, but like, you know, kind of, you know, crossing between the retail side of the business and the direct side of the business. So direct business sales, didn't have the time of day for your like your local shop that was looking to buy two or three computers. They were dealing in hundreds. Yeah. Um, but still, and the biggest problem I had in this role was working with 
because my management reported up through the consumer retail was working with them and helping them understand that my clients would take weeks to convert. It we, would, yeah. And that's probably weeks. short, right? And that's on the shorter side. It wasn't like, you know, someone who walked in today and said, Hey, yeah, I run a small graphics de design firm and I'm hiring two new employees in the future. What does it look like for me to be able to do this? Or, or a phone call came in or, or whatever a lead came in for it. Like you're, you're talking about like multiple conversations. You're looking at potentially a couple weeks to, to close this deal. It wasn't something like pick up the phone and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get that order today. And like that, that lead time, that lead to conversion time is, is often much longer. And it's, it's one of those nuances that people often miss when comparing B2C to B2B. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things, especially where you have a component where you can buy online and B2B is you really start to blend business um, types together in that you have a very strong lead gen component that is really the top end of the funnel. And sure, you have that on traditional e-commerce sites, you know, you sign up for our newsletter or sign up to get, you know, alerted of our next deals. You, you have that. But in a B2B setting, it's an integral part of the, the purchase process. And um, to view it otherwise, you're you're missing the, the full story. So again, trying to overlay what's done in B2C on B2B and saying, oh, just look when they view a product and add it to their cart and they check out. No, you're missing a massive part of the story. Um, and oftentimes this is because to your point, it's large volumes. It's often larger per unit prices. And so these are not necessarily decisions that are made on a whim, you know, saying, oh, that's a $5 thing from Amazon. Yeah, just buy now. You know, that, that's not how it happened. So there's a lot of education that has to happen. There's a lot of um, nurturing that relationship before the buy happens. And, and a lot of times, uh, B2B doesn't take that full journey into view, especially from an analytics perspective, because again, they've kind of taken the model of B2C and saying, well, we'll, we'll just kind of track our funnel as they track it. And it's, it's a huge, huge miss. Um, and it introduces a ton of challenges. You know, we've been talking a lot about um, challenges with um, third-party cookies going away and cookie lifetime shortening and deletion and blocking. And so how do we do attribution? Um, if you think it's hard from an ad perspective to do it, think about uh, an incredibly long sales cycle, how you piece that whole story together. It's incredibly difficult. Um, I once advised a company that in it, this company offered the highest online store ticket prices that I've ever worked with. They, they sold DNA sequencers and uh, you could buy these sequencers and the products for them online through their website. Um, and the average sales cycle was something like nine months. I mean, these were often a million dollar plus machines that were being purchased in a, in a checkout funnel online. Um, but the bulk of the work was in education and research and figuring out, oh, do I have the right thing? And then filling out, you know, there was just so much that, that goes into that. Trying to treat that like a consumer purchase is just a losing battle. Yeah. And, and you brought up a, a really good point there, which I think is, is often missed when we see businesses just slap together a a a site again whether it's lead gen or e-commerce that targets um b2b customers um 
it's the the nurturing of the relationship mm-hmm. like th- those folks whether it's the the small three to four person graphic design shop or you know the 200 person medium-sized business that has three offices in a, in a tri-state area they want a relationship yeah. they want someone that they can call to confirm that what they're looking to get will fit their their team's needs they want to see what options they have they want to know bulk licensing That's when right. it comes to to software they want to know those things so they want to talk to someone and build that relationship so and not just go on and click add to cart yeah we and we worked on a problem like this for one of our clients a couple of years ago um that has since been acquired by by Adobe, um, where we spent a lot of time thinking through that. And we may get to this in a future episode where we talk about the importance of expanding the view of your data. I mean, it's always a good thing, but especially in these scenarios, you can't just rely on your digital analytics platform to tell you the story because to your to your point, there's a lot of self-directed research and knowledge gathering that as the potential customer I'm going to be doing on your website. But I'm also going to be reaching out to your team. Maybe I fill out a form to get more information. Maybe your team follows up with me. Maybe we have some some discovery sessions. So all that data is held somewhere else. How do we start to piece that whole story together? Because that's really telling me the story of your your consumers. And again, I think that's the it's one of the bigger challenges that we see B2B companies facing is that they take a much too digital centric view of the data and all they're really getting is the very, very, very last moment of conversion in their purview. There's so much that happens upstream and there's so much that happens in between the gaps that don't happen on the website that we lose visibility to. And it makes things incredibly difficult to piece together. The other, the other thing that I would lay on, on top of that. And and again, stop me if we're getting too much in the weeds. One of the, one of the challenges that we face with every one of our B2B clients is they all want to do A-B testing and personalization. Um, and we run into a attack dog again. I know you guys love love having her show up in the episodes. Um, well, we, we know when you're getting a delivery. Um, which is every day. Um, w- one of the major challenges from that aspect is that, and, and from an analysis standpoint as well, is that it's, it's again, so much different from the consumer side because while it, it's almost the inverse relationship, while the volumes may be huge and the sticker prices are huge, the actual number of customers is quite small. Where on retail, you may be doing, you know, your cart size is incredibly small, but you have a huge number of customers. So you have a big data set of lots of different interactions and behavior points in in B2B, you don't have that usually. You have very small data sets, which makes analysis a very real challenge and makes A-B testing incredibly difficult to pull off. Interesting. I did not think about that one Um, because you're right. You you brought up two really good things there is number of customers is different and then cart size purchase size is are different. Let's come back to that in a second. But yeah, you know, talk to me more about the A/B testing because yeah, that is definitely something I did not think of 
when yeah i mean a b testing is it, it needs volume you know we're 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 trying to take a sample size and come up with um come up with a result that we can uh, ascribe to the the greater population and the the more samples you take the better likelihood or the more trust that you have in the results that it applies to the general population when you have very small sample sizes it's very difficult to get any kind of statistically sound results um, which makes A-B testing in a B2B environment inherently difficult simply because of the small sample size that you have. And then when you compound that with B2B organizations that are often um, risk adverse in that they don't like taking big risks on their website, because again, we're not talking about, okay, you're buying a $10 trinket. We're talking about you're buying a $10,000 unit and you're probably buying a hundred of those, you know? And so they're very, very cautious about making changes on their website. But when you have a small sample size and you make very minuscule changes, I'm going to change this button from blue to cornflower blue. You're not going to impact enough change to help drive any kind of meaningful results. And so when we work with B2B businesses, it's, it's really less about, um, coming up with really interesting test ideas or helping them select a, a testing platform. A lot of the work we do is cultural and helping them um, get comfortable with making more broad scale, large changes because they're in a position because of their small, small sample sizes where unless they're willing to make big changes on their site, it's, it's almost um, a waste of time for them to be doing A-B testing. Yeah, again, I, 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 it, it's quite obvious when you say it, um, but it's one of those things that I think you know people don't think of until they either try it or someone yeah. points it out. Yeah, because with the, with the volume being, and, so and I think it's part of a a bigger problem where we try to. Um, we're gonna have a guest. <laughs> What are we what are we learning in school today? Okay. I, I like yeah, the shoulder I shrug. I don't know. Something I'm gonna print out, so I'm gonna go learn that. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a bigger problem in, in general where we try to make things we try to be so efficient in everything that we come up with these models or playbooks that we want to use to describe everything. And in fact, I get a it was frustrating at the time, but I get a chuckle out of it. We were working with, um, speaking of big ticket items, we were working with a uh, solar manufacturer many, many years ago, um, and they hired a new um, director of analytics, and the director of analytics came in and said, all right, so here's my game plan on how we're going to do things, and I'm going to use my experience running analytics um, for a, I think it was a financial company, um, or a lead, I can't remember, like a completely, completely different world. Um, and, and, and this is how we're going to do it. Maybe it was, maybe it was retail. And then this is how we're going to run analytics here. I'm like, what? I mean, yeah, sure. Let's, let's take what we learn across verticals. I think verticals can, uh, inform other types of verticals and it can be very useful, but to take the blueprint of, well, this is what I did at my last job and apply it to this job. 
it's lazy at best. At, at, at worst, I mean, you're you're going to really mis mislead your 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 teams and your companies. And this is a, again a big problem we see in B two B because it is such a smaller niche. Most most people, when you look at their career arc, um, don't really have the opportunity to work in in B two B. A lot of it is consumer facing. And so they'll take their background in a B2B, B2C company, they'll get hired on into a B2B role and they'll say, well, this is what I did at my last job, so I'm going to do it here. And, and, and it, just, it just doesn't work. We need, to be, we need to be much more open to understanding the nuances of the roles that we're in and the companies that, that we work in, and especially where we're talking B2B versus B2C. And again, absolutely, there's things that each can learn from the other. But try to, to try to replicate what one does exactly in the other. It's 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 a losing strategy that unfortunately we see a lot of people do. Whether it's just because they don't know any better, or they're trying to be efficient. I don't know what it is, but it's a major challenge for sure. Yeah, totally. And I think that that also just leads into what we've talked about before. You know, this, you know, as people kind of move from company to company, it's the let's tear down and restart. But that's <laughs> oh, a man, whole don't get me other started conversation. On yeah. 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 No, I'm not going to get you started on that one. Um, so, one question as we start to, to wrap up today, and we'll, get, we'll start to get into the details of things next week. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, a lot, you know, B2B, there's, there's, mm-hmm. there's big ticket items there. Um, why then is the, you know, the B2B side of things, you know, with a company often treated as the redheaded stepchild of the business and secondary to man, if I had an answer to that, I think, (laughs) you know, we could solve so many problems because I have no idea. And, and I'm left scratching my head when I see it and we've, over my career, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot, probably more than 10 businesses that have been both ha- that both have a B2C and a B2B arm. And in every one of those cases, without question, the B2B side of the business drove more revenue for the company. But it's the B2C side that gets all of the attention, all of the budget. It's sexier it does it has more eyeballs like well there's you know way more consumers that are looking at the b2c side and i don't know why that is i would think as informed smart executives that are overseeing the health of the entire company it would be very clear for me to look and see my b2b unit is driving twice the revenue of my b2c unit um that seems logical to me but there's something that's breaking down because in every one of these cases, the B2B side made more money than the B2C side, yet that they were constantly underfunded. They constantly were kind of living off the scraps of the B2C side. It's like, oh, they purchased these tools. You guys figure out how to use them too. And it, I, I don't have an answer. I, I wish I had an answer to it because I've seen it time and time again. And it just is a mystery to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've seen the same thing too. And it, it, it always, it's one been one of yeah. those curiosities and, and I'm not saying that the B2B should be treated 
better it's like give it its proper i mean give them a budget to do some of these things (laughs) and and again you know it's a challenge that we have with our b2b clients is that they want to do all the things they're seeing their b2c um colleagues doing but they just they they never have the same level of budget and support from the company to be able to do those things It, it seems like such a wasted opportunity and maybe i'm missing something that's just right there but it's just, you know, they're, they're often asked to operate on a shoestring budget and just make it work. And they're kind of, you guys go sit in the back office or the basement. Don't, you know, just do your thing and churn out your work and we'll focus on B2C. And, and maybe it comes down to this whole concept of the buyer persona, right? Like B2B, it's less emotional. It's more tactical and operational. We've had it. We've had a relationship with these companies for 50 years. They always buy this from us, you know, just let it run. B2C is where we need to be focused on winning new customers because it's so transient and it's turning over. So that's where the budget's going to go. I don't know. Maybe someone that has has seen both of those worlds from an executive standpoint can uh, follow up with this or may want to be a guest on a future podcast because I honestly don't have a, an answer for it. Uh, one last question as, as we wrap up. You know, thinking back to all of those situations where you've advised businesses that have that B2B arm. As you think back, what's like the one common thing that you've, you know, you've advised all or, or many of them to do? So I, I guess it's, it's two things. One, fight for budget because it's hard for them to do the things they want to do without budget. We're talking, you know, if we're, if we think we're dealing with small teams on a B2C side, they're even smaller on a B2B side. So, you know, where we may have an analyst and an implementer and a testing strategist and a designer and all this on the B2C side, oftentimes on the B2B side, you have one person that has to wear all of those hats. And so, you know, that's my my biggest piece of advice, but that's difficult to do. Where we can have an impact is empathize with the fact that they have to wear all those hats and help teach them that, don't try to bite it off all at, all at once. It's it's impossible for you to do all these things because you're talking about doing the job of five or six people. So let's let's figure out how to put a framework in place where we can break these things down into smaller chunks and don't try to replicate what your B2C colleagues are doing because they have more budget and more people power than you have to do it. So let's let's reset our expectations and de- and define a path for us as a B2B unit and not compare to what the B2C unit does. It's a subtle shift, but it's one that creates a much better outcome in my experience in realigning expectations of what actually can get done. Cool. Well, this is gonna be a little bit on the shorter side, but that is intentional because I, I kind of want to use this as an intro to to the topic. So hopefully kind of pique some folks interest on the next couple of weeks of really, really diving in deep into this and how that, you know, how B2B versus B2C works, you know, for, from a digital analyst perspective, digital analytics implementation perspective yeah. and whatnot. So as we wrap up any, no, any I'm excited to kind of jump or... into those details. Cause I think there's a lot of, again, the, the key word in this episode seems to be nuanced to, to how digital analytics can be deployed um, more successfully in a more valuable way in a B2B environment and 
super excited to kind of share some of our experience and recommendations from, from that perspective. Cool. Cool. Good stuff then. So in that case, we'll get ahead and wrap up for now and talk to everybody later. See ya. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.